Decades of studies from respected institutions have demonstrated the significant impacts of porn consumption on individuals, relationships, and society. Truth About Porn is a current, ever-growing database dedicated to giving visibility to the research on the harmful effects of pornography. Access the latest studies and watch expert interviews to brush up on the research detailing the harms of pornography. Get the facts at truthaboutporn.org. My name is Garrett Johnson, and you're listening to Consider Before Consuming, a podcast by Fight the New Drug. And in case you're new here, Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. We want these conversations to be educational, uplifting, and hopeful As we sit down with experts, influencers, activists, and people with personal accounts, we cover a wide variety of topics that may be triggering to some. You can refer to the episode notes for a specific trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is with Dr. Stephanie Powell. Dr. Powell is the Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on sexual exploitation. She has very unique insight into the world of sexual exploitation and human trafficking. In addition to earning a doctorate, she worked with the LAPD for 30 years. And since her retirement, she has spent almost a decade working with victims and survivors of sexual exploitation. During this conversation, we talked about sex trafficking, survivor empowerment, and what a layperson can do to be part of the solution. With that being said, Let's jump into the conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Well, Dr. Powell, we want to say thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. And when I say that we are grateful, we're always grateful no matter who the person is, but I think we are especially grateful when the person has earned the title of doctor because it, <laughs> it shows that you've put in the work. Thank you, sir. I, I still have post-traumatic stress disorder as a result. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. How long did it take you to earn the title of doctor? It took me, um, it took me five years, which was pretty fast, about five, five and a half. Because I did it while I was working LAPD, I was in charge of a vice unit. So I literally would get off at like three in the morning, drive to school and sleep in the parking lot till uh, the class started. Dang. (laughs) My respect for you just increased. (laughs) I always always love a good success story and someone that's (laughs) had to battle through all the struggles of life, you know? While raising two kids. Wow. Well, Dr. Powell, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. And for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, can you talk to what you're up to today? You mentioned you've raised two kids, um, but also professionally, what are you doing? So professionally, I work for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. I am presently uh, the Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. That's a mouthful. It seems like an important role. I only see it as important, not so much for me personally, 
but humbly for uh, law enforcement officers to be able to really understand the uh, victimology of victims of human trafficking and to have a full understanding of the impact and importance of focusing on uh, the sex buyers. Focusing on the sex buyers. What do you mean by that? Meaning that oftentimes law enforcement um, will focus more so on the arrest of the prostituted Mm -hmm. as opposed to focusing on those that are um, exploiting and buying human beings for the purposes of sex. Right. Okay. And so the, the other side of the job that I do in terms of survivor services, um, the national center on sexual exploitation has a uh, law center component to it. And so when we are working with clients, that a lot of our clients have dealt with a lot of traumatic, um, you know, things that have happened to them. And so therefore, I help them with resources as they're plowing through this whole issue of, um, of the things that have happened to them for them to become our clients in the first place, if wow. that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I listened to your talk on trauma-informed care. Yes. And that was really good to talk about Thank that, you. that paradigm shift that needs to happen. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's for anybody, regardless of whether it's law enforcement or service providers, to really understand the impact of trauma that um, that clients have experienced and know how to work with them without re-traumatizing them. And that is so important when it comes to Um, attorneys like in our law center to be trauma-informed because they have to ask so many questions pertaining to the case, right? And being able to have that patience and understanding, but at the same time, getting to the, the truth of the matter that is going to be able to help the case without re traumatizing the victim. Yeah. And that can be a very delicate process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, that that that's going to include things like memory, um, you know, recalling the situation that they were in. They may sometimes be late to an appointment. They may sometimes be a little curt with you or not talking much at all. Mm-hmm. But if you understand that all of that is trauma related, then you will form more of opinion of uh, of of being able to be helpful and understanding and most of all patient. Yeah. It's almost like once that understanding is there and you have that paradigm shift, then you, it allows the, the law enforcement to be part of the solution and not take it personally if they are maybe not connecting or don't find trust with that, that specific individual. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to know, I just, I have this number in front of me, but I want to know if it's the correct number. And it's that you worked for the LAPD for 30 years? Yes, sir. Dang. <laughs> Talking about putting in the work. <laughs> yeah, 30 years. And my last five to six years, I was the officer in charge of a vice unit 
um, in the San Fernando Valley portion of Los Angeles. Wow. That's a unique experience that you have and lots of experience. Especially as a female, because a lot of times um, in law enforcement, female um, sergeants especially, as well as officers, are not always drawn to vice because of the uh, the content that you have to deal with. Yeah. And working amongst men, because most, vi- most vice units are men. Uh-huh. So you could be the only female in a vice unit. Wow. But I'll tell you, um, the vice unit that I had was very diverse in terms of not only gender, but race as well. But it was really important in terms of my selection of those that worked my vice unit had to uh, be very clear on a victim-centered approach to be able to uh, display and use empathy in their decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really important to me uh, because I knew that we were dealing with a very delicate situation, even though we did not clearly at that time, because we're, we're talking, I retired in 2013. So we're talking, you know, um, early 2000, in which law enforcement was really behind the eight ball as it pertained to a victim centered approach yeah. to human trafficking, right? So even though I may not have fully grasped that understanding, it did parallel in the way that I saw policing in the first place and seeing people as human beings and being able to utilize empathy. But at the same time, I understood that, um, you know, um, I also had to enforce the law, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. And, and I'll tell you another paradigm shift for me personally was um, when I started working um, vice, I even, for me, I had to change my mindset because I just thought everybody that was out there was out there by choice. And back then we were, we were arresting juveniles. So, yes, the, so my misunderstanding was that everybody was out there by choice. However, until I started talking to the people that I was arresting and then really realizing um, the true nature component and the results of those that were out there by force, fraud or coercion. Right. And so when I started talking to them and really understanding it, it was at that time that I also realized that this was not an issue that could be arrested away, that services were needed. So I started working with a um, organization that was in LA called um, the Mary Magdalene Project. And those that um, I did not have to arrest, I would um, get them services through the Mary Magdalene Project. When I retired, they had an executive director spot open. And so I became the executive director of um, Um, the Mary Magdalene project in which we changed the name to journey out. And I did that for seven years after my retirement. That's amazing. So you have 30 years of experience, then you retired and then you did seven more with journey out. Yes. And now I've been, I'm going on my second year with the national center on sexual exploitation. Goodness. (laughs) You're a powerhouse. (laughs) This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I, I'll tell you, I think knowing 
and understanding this whole issue from a law enforcement um, uh, a law enforcement um, perspective perspective yeah thank you as well as a um, victim service perspective has really helped me in my not only in my own decision making uh, in the job that I do now within Cozy, but in in teaching others, yeah. especially law enforcement, because I can stand before them and say, "Hey, you know, I didn't I didn't get this either." Right. But now that I understand it from these two perspectives, I can see what it is that law enforcement is doing right, and what is that. Uh, in the areas that need improvement, because I'm, I'm telling you, with law enforcement, once they get something, oh my God, they're they're it, they're all out, you know. So once they understood, and I've I've seen the difference, you know. Once they understand the victimization aspect of it, these guys and 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 women go through the unth degree in order to um, assist these victims through their trauma. Right. And you lived through a period of time where there has been a very significant change in that paradigm shift. You mentioned that in the early 2000s, the way that law enforcement looked at these types of situations was very different to what you were encouraging today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. First of all, think about this. It's only been a short period of time, right, that law enforcement and they should not be arresting victims of human trafficking, but they should not be arresting uh, minor victims of human trafficking, right? Right. Um, It's just been just the last few years. Um, Now that I look back and I think about the 12-year-old that I arrested for the crime of prostitution just gives me a real ick feeling Yeah. now that I look back on that, right? But at that time, it, the, the perception was that you have a 12-year-old in prostitution and prostitution being against the law. Mm-hmm. However, having said that, though, even though I realized, wow, this is a 12-year-old, it's the treatment of that 12-year-old during that arrest process, right? So in, 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 in talking to her with kindness and without judgment and trying to find the parents who were nowhere to be found and not wanting to take her to juvenile hall, but just instinctively calling social services, just trying to find other ways to help her out, even though she broke the law, if that makes sense. Right. But now, you know, I am so glad that we have gotten away from that. Yeah. But looking back on that makes the hair on my neck stand up. Right. And almost ashamed to even say that, you know, I, I arrested juveniles for the crime of prostitution, but that was the time that we were in. We didn't know what else to do. And that is why training is so incredibly important so that law enforcement understands um, uh, the trauma that uh, these people that they come in contact with. Well, it's really cool that you can acknowledge that implicit bias that you held at one point, And it's really cool that you have been able to 
shift your perspective to a more trauma centered approach. And yeah, that's just amazing. It's really powerful that you have lived through that process of that paradigm shift. You know, and I feel, I feel blessed that I can stand in front of a group of officers and say, you know, for, for those of you that don't fully understand why you need to understand uh, uh, the, the, the trauma perspective of those that you come in contact with, I stand before you saying that I didn't understand it either. That's powerful. There were no shades of gray. It was black or white. You broke the law, you go to jail. You know what I mean? But it was not until I took that time to understand the people that I was putting in, in handcuffs that it really became very clear to me that there was more to this and we could not arrest our way out of this issue. Yeah. A recent example with someone being arrested under the age of 18 is Satoya Brown. It was yes. th- that one that got a, it got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a recent example showing kind of what the, showing that that paradigm shift is occurring because it did receive some good attention even. Yeah, it was a very difficult situation. Right. And, you know, even when you talk, when you talk about Centoya Brown, you know, I, I, I think the other gap that needs to be filled in this full understanding is the, um, uh, the judgment aspect of it in terms of sentencing. Mm-hmm. That, okay, you, you have some people that, have, that are victims of human trafficking that have committed felonies. And so instead of just looking at what it looks like on paper in black and white when determining what that sentence should be, I think taking into consideration the fact, you know, taking in consideration when thinking about the sentencing, you know, what got them there? What caused them to commit this felony? Looking at the trauma that they've had to endure as a victim, not only as a victim of human trafficking, in its present state, but looking at their childhood and the things that may have made them vulnerable for a trafficker to get a hold of them in the first place. Yeah. And when you look at all of that combined and then make the decision on sentencing as a result of that, you may come out with lesser sentences. Yeah. And that becomes the justice of it. Or no sentencing at all, where you're able to do time served. Mm-hmm. If, if that if that makes sense, I'm, yeah, it I'm does not make a sense. judge, but I think it needs to be considered when we're talking about reforming the whole justice system as it pertains to human trafficking victims. It's not just police; it's the prosecutors and the judges that have that that need to understand this process as well. So instead of, and the trauma approach thing that I love to say is that when you look at somebody, instead of saying what's wrong with you, looking at it from the lens of what happened to you. And when we look at it from the lens of what happened to you and let that motivate your, um, your decisions, you can't help but walk away with a more victim centered approach that is trauma center 
Yeah, it almost it reminds me of what psychologists like what therapists have to have for their clients, which is unconditional positive regard. Yeah, you know, they they have to the the judgment as a therapist you you can't judge your client because you have to understand them, and once you understand them, you you can't judge them. Exactly. Well, exactly. I think it's important to note that you know this is not a one sided conversation. Um, you've met with a lot of people. You've had tons of experience, more than 30 years in law enforcement and then several, almost a decade now outside of law enforcement, working with victims and survivors. And so what I mean by that it's not a one-sided conversation is that there are survivors out there who are helping in this process, in this paradigm Mm -hmm. shift. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe the most important part of this paradigm shift are the survivors who are speaking out to help those who haven't experienced the life of sex trafficking understand the complexities of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to talk with Tina Front <laughs> at Courtney's house. I love Tina. Yeah, Tina is an amazing individual. And... Yeah, she she brought a lot of information and a lot of awareness and a lot of she helped me in my understanding of what is sex trafficking. And she referred to it as the life. Yes. Is that kind of how you refer to it as well? Yes, yes, I I I call it the life. Can you talk to that a little bit? Why those that have experienced it or those who are really familiar with this issue refer to it as the life versus you know, sex trafficking or human trafficking? Well, you know, when, in, in calling it the life, you know, my God, when you think about the heaviness, right, of, 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 of human trafficking, and you think of, let's say someone has been in it from, you know, they've been a victim of it, let's say from the age of 12 to, to 19, right? I mean, that, that's a heavy portion of your life yeah right and so i could see how it's equated to the life and and what i kind of like about this conversation that we're having right now because it becomes the life but it doesn't have to be their entire life yeah right um Because somebody like Tina that's been out of the life for a a large period of time, those survivors that have gotten out of that portion of their life Mm -hmm. have to continue on with the rest of their life. So I think the life really denotes a, a, a particular time within their entire life, if that makes sense. It's almost like an acknowledgement to the heaviness of what they had to endure. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I think that people that have survived the life, I, I see them as, um, people, people with lived experience, right? Yeah. And so they become extremely important especially to um, policing, uh, when they can sit down with that victim. Let's say you have a victim who is um, planning to testify against their trafficker. Yeah. 
Um, and that, that whole process can be grueling before trial and during the trial and after the trial. Right. And to have somebody with you that has been through what you have been through um, can be calming for you. They also can be the go-between or the advocate to say, you know, look, you know, um, if she's talking to, let's say she's talking to the um, uh, the victim and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. These are the questions that they're going to have to ask and why. I will be there with you if you want me to, to help you through this process. Yeah, This helps law enforcement because law enforcement has an advocate that they can trust that is going to be in the room that is going to help their victim get through this process with the end result in mind for law enforcement, which is put the bad guy in jail, right? Knowing what to say to that victim, not to demonize that their suspect, even though they probably have demonized him, right? Because they know that by demonizing him, that might shut that person down, meaning the victim. Mm -hmm. And so I, one of the things that I did when I went to journey out, and this goes from my experience, you know, we would have victims and we'd get their information and then we would just send them on their way or give them a piece of paper of places where they could find help. So when I um, was at Journey Out, I was thinking to myself, there's, there's a better way to do this. Why don't we get a survivor to actually work with police, not just when they're doing stings, but whenever they get a victim of human trafficking, we will be on call and they will have a survivor advocate to be able to help that victim from the beginning of the process. But that also is with the understanding that she does not have to testify against her trafficker in order to receive help, right? Because that that still empowers the victim or the survivor because they still have a choice. Absolutely. And and after that trust is established, once that that the victim is able to trust everyone around her, her or him, the law enforcement officer the advocate, you know, and they make the decision, you know what, I want to get out of the life. I don't want to do this anymore. And by the way, I think my trafficker needs to go to jail. I'm going to do a police report. She's going to call that officer who she has met through this process. And I use the word she, and I know that um, trafficking is not gender binding, but um, they can call that officer that they have now met because they're going to be able to trust them. Right. It's a win-win. Right. It's so important for law enforcement to really work with nonprofit organizations and work with survivors. And let me just say one other thing is that also it is helpful for the survivor who has been arrested and may have had negative experiences with law enforcement to now see law enforcement in a different light that they truly want to help. Yeah. It bridges right? some of these gaps. Oh my gosh! And when you see the bridging of that gap, it's it's beautiful to see. It really is. Yeah, that is I, a beautiful I, thing. It, it is. Yeah. Well, 
during this conversation, you've used the words force, fraud, coercion. And for some of our listeners, they might not be familiar with why you use those specific words. Can you talk to, like, that's basically what is the definition of sex trafficking and why those words are important? So those those words are important because those are the words that are used in the Trafficking Victim Protection Act, in which um, an an adult that has been um, trafficked for the for the purposes of sexual exploitation, where they become um, the trafficker benefits from someone's exploitation. And so for the adult, it has to be proven that it's through force, fraud, or coercion. If they are a minor, um, they are automatically considered a victim of human, of, of human sex trafficking with those elements of fraud, fraud, force, or coercion. But in a court of law for the minor, it does not have to be proven. Okay. It's by their mere age, if that makes sense. Yeah. And this is both domestically and internationally, because a lot of times people, when they think of human trafficking, they think this is only something that happens on an international level. It does happen on an international level, but it also is happening here in the United States with United States citizens. I think one of the common questions that a layperson might have is what are the fuels of sex trafficking like what is fueling sex trafficking oh my goodness what it's a complex complex question i know right there's so many moving parts to it you know when when you you say what fuels it i i think of of several things that that does one of the things is is i believe our society's ability to objectify women, right? To see um, women as a source of entertainment. And when you look at someone um, in terms of them being an object, it's easy to put a price on them. And so even society, even though our society here in America says that that is wrong, we also take a blind eye to it, right? And so um, I, I, I think that that is part of the problem, what fuels that, because what that does is it fuels demand, right? It fuels demand that it is okay, and I'm just going to use men in this scenario, for a man to buy a woman or a child for the purposes of sexual pleasure, right? And so even as I say these words, you know, listeners and even myself go like, ooh, right? Mm-hmm. And we take a blind eye, but yet at the same time, when we turn on television or we're reading something or you hear people in conversation, we have a tendency to objectify women. Mm-hmm. So I think that overall idea of objectification of women or, or even, and I know this happens with, with men and boys as well, so I, I, I understand that. So when you objectify a human being, I think that that 
helps to feel um, uh, uh, a human trafficking because people are making money off of it. Um, and so that's why I think it's important that when we're looking at human trafficking, we have to look at it from the lens of demand. The other part of this is that what we do know is that human trafficking disproportionately um, affects women and men and boys and girls of color. And so we're talking about marginalized, um, vulnerable groups. And I think what, what fuels that is, you know, sometimes it's poverty driven, sometimes just in the mere fact that you're in a marginalized, um, uh, uh, you're in a, a marginalized group can cause you to be more vulnerable. Yeah. And that vulnerability could be from lack of education. It could be from um, uh, our justice system. Right. So there are so many things that drive this um, drive human trafficking um, and sexual exploitation. And so we cannot look at this through only one lens. We have to look at it from a helicopter view because there's so many things that we need to fix. There's so many things that we need to fix in terms of our mindsets in society, in terms of how we see each other, whether it be how we see each other as a marginalized group or as we see each other as objects for the purposes of entertainment and seeing ourselves that way as well. Objecti objectification and self-objectification. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We recorded a conversation with Terry Crews and... Are you familiar with who Terry Crews is? Yes, I am. And, and one of the, I applaud ahead. him. Oh, yeah. I applaud him. Uh-huh. Yeah. Us too. One of the quotes from Terry Crews that kind of aligns with what you're saying in regards to objectification, he said that porn changes the way you think about people. People become objects. People become body parts. They become things to be used rather than people to be loved. And I think it's real cool. You, you mentioned that you applaud Terry and... I think it's real cool that he was able to engage in that openness and and genuineness and express how porn did change his perspective and increase objectification in his mind. And, and you know the other and 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 it goes back to also what we're saying about society, right? I I mean he was blasted for making those statements. He was blasted for the sexual harassment that he dealt with in the film industry. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to society really having to change their mindset, right? Yeah. And see these things as totally unacceptable. So when someone comes out and says those things, even for me to have to say, I admire him for having the, um, the, the 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 strength to be able to come out against that. Why should he even have to have the strength to do that? Because it should be automatically accepted. Yeah. Right? The strength it, should it, come from society. 
Exactly. And so that's what I'm saying about that helicopter view of there's so many things that we have to change. Yeah. Well, one of the misconceptions that we deal with when we're talking about human trafficking and I guess specifically sex trafficking and the porn industry is that the misconception is that there's two industries, that there's sex trafficking industry over there and that there's the porn industry over here and that they're two separate industries. And oftentimes we'll see people who are anti-sex trafficking, but then pro-pornography. I think it's possible to hold that perspective. But what I say to people is, do you really fully understand how the two can also um, interconnect? There's an interconnectedness between the two. Because you could have uh, someone who is being trafficked into pornography. Now, I'll tell you what, what, what's interesting about that, because you're, you're absolutely right. That person can have any perspective that they want to. Right. But their perspective is based on a, a very limited understanding, right, of, of human trafficking. Because a human trafficking victim can show up in any um, industry, so to speak. So they can show up in pornography. They can show up in brothels. People really need to understand that the human trafficking victim can show up in those things that are considered to be legal. That it, it goes back to what I was saying, that when I saw um, people that were prostituted, I just assumed that they were there by choice. Oh, yeah. Right? I get what you're and so, yeah, so the same thing happens. You see someone in pornography, the assumption is that they're there by choice. You see somebody in a brothel, they're... You're thinking, well, they're there by choice. And also what, what we forget is that sometimes we think that there's no trauma that goes in these things as well. Well, just because they're in front of the camera, there's no trauma. But there is trauma in all of this. So, yes, absolutely. Um, and and I'll, I'll use myself again as an example. Uh, as the vice sergeant. I was in charge of, uh, of my unit dealt with the San Fernando Valley. Now, we know that uh, the San Fernando Valley is supposed to be the, the porn capital, right? Where there are a lot of movies that are filmed in the San Fernando Valley portion of Los Angeles. I did not even consider that human trafficking victims were in pornography because it was legal. So unless somebody made a complaint or filed a police report, I would never know. So I never, so I didn't even think about it, right? So I was one of these people that, that we started this conversation about until I got to the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Now I knew that it was probably possible. And even when I was at, um, uh, journey out, I can't say that it was in the forefront of my mind, if that makes sense. Um, I just thought of it as, um, you know, for, for some that it was sexual exploitation for them, but I wasn't really putting the pieces together. My aha moment came when I started working with the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, um, and they were looking for um, clients who had been harmed through the pornography industry at, and they had been sex trafficked. So I started kind of thinking back and I started just asking people 
um, that were working in nonprofits. And they were like, I hadn't thought about that either. And I ended up um, having the opportunity to interview a young lady who said that her pimp, and this is her at under the age of 18, that her pimp made her work in pornography. And then it one thing leads to another. I started running into other women that had the same experience. And for me, it was gut-wrenching because I thought, how many times did I have somebody in front of me but never asked the question as it pertained to their victimization while um, um, working in pornography? How many people did I miss? So I, I think it's a great question. I think it's something that those that are working with clients need to remember the at the the legal aspects and how um, human trafficking can intersect into a legal system. And the same thing with 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 brothels. The women that I've I, I've talked to and 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 have heard their stories of how their pimps place them into the brothel system. So I think that I'm so glad you asked that question because I'm wondering how many of your listeners have even connected that dot, those dots, because the assumption becomes because they're in this legal system that they could not be um, victims of human trafficking because they're in a legal system. It's interesting that you're mentioning that people can be trafficked into pornography. There's a really popular person who is a former performer, and her name's Mia Khalifa, and she was on an interview with the BBC, and she talked about that, how because she's very popular, people within the porn industry will often reach out to her and say, hey, look, I'm experiencing this. What do I do? And that's one of the things she mentioned during this interview is that she she receives emails from people who have been trafficked into pornography. Wow. So it just it aligns with what you're saying. And it's powerful to, to get all these different perspectives. You've talked about the different marginalized groups and the complexities there that can make people more vulnerable to becoming victims of sex trafficking. What other, you mentioned as well, maybe you mentioned this, or maybe I'm just thinking you mentioned it, but did you mention childhood abuse, childhood neglect, and those types of things? I, I may have just, I, I, I mentioned that in terms of, in a general sense of vulnerabilities and placing them at risk. And, but one thing I, I, I will add to it, um, when we talk about victims of human trafficking, and uh, their vulnerabilities, which allows a trafficker to pick up on that and know exactly what to say. And that's that coercion piece. Mm. Um, and it, it makes it easy for them to um, figure out how they can coerce this person based on finding where what they feel is a weakness about them. Yeah. So finding that weakness 
about that person makes it easier for them to be coerced. Having said that, one thing that I found while I was at Journey Out was that, and this is no exaggeration, about 80 to 90 percent of the clients there were victims of um, child sexual abuse. Oh, wow. So you, you're already setting them up in a vulnerable place. So they've already dealt with trauma before they've even met their trafficker. Right. Right. And so, um, uh, again, people need to understand who this person really is and a lot of their, their vulnerability, a lot of um, their hurt and brokenness occurred before they met that trafficker, which set up that, that perfect storm for them to meet that person and to coerce them into uh, getting into the life. And let me say a journey out, um, a journey out, we were seeing anywhere between 320 to 360 clients a year. This is a different 360 clients every year. So it's not the same. So when I give you that statistic of how many of them unfortunately experienced child abuse, that's pretty significant, which, which when, you, when you talk about that, I think about the prevention piece because I, I think that the prevention piece is extremely important. And that prevention piece doesn't start when um, a child is in middle school, mm-hmm. you know, it, it starts with, with the parents and the adults that are around that child yeah. to be able to protect them. So they're not running away from home because of molestation, because they're not running away from home from um, physical abuse and running into the arms of a predator that says that they're going to help them Right. Right. And then that, that, that leaves coercion them so, comes in. Right. It leaves them so vulnerable and at risk for this. So, you know, if that's one of the causes, then that's preventable. You know, the other thing that's preventable is teaching our our kids that they are enough. Mm-hmm. You know, you are enough in terms of who you are as opposed to having to measure themselves in a world that presents itself artificially in the first place. Right. Right. Because that too is a vulnerability and makes one at risk for, for, for human trafficking. And then the other prevention piece is the peer pressure aspect of it. Um, where, uh, someone, where, where, where you set boundaries um, and being able to set those boundaries and not fear, feel forced into stepping over them. Yeah. Now, I know all these things that I laid out, people may say, okay, that's really Pollyanna. But if we look at it as being Pollyanna and never able and feeling that we'll, we'll never be able to attain those things as it pertains to prevention, then we do nothing. 
Mm-hmm. If we see that we have to do something, that's when we start not only on this road of making change on individual levels, but on a society level as well. I, you know, I'm 64, and I remember when my parents smoked yeah. because smoking was socially acceptable, right? Now you walk into somebody's house, you can't find an ashtray. Mm-hmm. So who would have thought back then that smoking would have been considered socially unacceptable? Mm. Just like driving drunk. So I think, you know, this idea of prevention is possible, but we need to go past just having the conversation and absolutely looking at it from the helicopter view of how do we prevent it in our society? How do we keep those not only from being forced into entering into sexual exploitation, but how do we keep people from buying other people? And once we see that as socially unacceptable, that's when we can begin to make the change. Yeah, that's powerful. I have two questions. We're about to finish the conversation here, but I have a couple more questions if you're if you're still okay on time. Yes. So the first question is regarding how people can use pornography as a grooming tool. Mm. Can you talk to that yes. a little bit? Yes. So... I have talked to survivors who said that their pimps slash trafficker would have them look at pornography as a training tool of how they should be with their clients in terms of teaching them um, proper sexual acts that will help to make money for that pimp. Um, but also I've had survivors, people with lived experience talk about how the sex buyer would want to play out scenarios and fantasies that he saw in pornography. So it, it, it does play, uh, to an extent into um, human trafficking and prostitution and sexual exploitation. Yeah. Well, the other question I had was, what are some other ways that a layperson or us as anti-trafficking advocates and organizations can be a part of the solution in helping that societal shift happen? You know, and, and I can't remember off offhand but I loved the, uh, the term, real men don't buy sex. I thought that was perfect. You know, it, it's teaching our, our boys and men that women are not objects that you buy, that they're human beings with feelings. Um, I think that that's so important. And, e- and even teaching our young ladies that you don't have to be an object 
You don't have to feel like an object in order to be accepted or in order to be loved. Yeah. Right. It goes back to that um, statement. You are enough. Yeah. You're enough. Yeah. You're enough. I, I just, I, I think that if we can, part of that, that shift in cultural belief is that, um, you know, real men don't buy sex. So I think it goes back to what is a real man and a real man is one that, uh, uh, generates concern for others that has the ability to love outwardly without shame that has the ability to show emotion and it's okay and I think that you know in society we need to teach our young boys that and that comes from mothers too you know uh, mothers teaching our boys that it's okay to cry yeah. You know, it's okay to cry. You can have strength, right? You can have emotional and physical strength at the same time and still be a man and still be a gentleman. Right. I love that. And that's what we need to teach. And I think once we teach that, and that starts to become... Um, how we see men, yeah, it becomes the norm, then that's what makes the rest of this easy in terms of where we want to go mm. in terms of demand. There we go. That's the solution. I love it. We've acknowledged how survivors play a critical role because of their lived experience. They, mm -hmm. they play a critical role in being in, in the solution. But I, I think that we should also talk to people who are currently being exploited but want to exit the life mm -hmm. but have a little bit of hesitancy to do so because of the daunting task that faces them of exiting the life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you talk to some of the resources available to help someone exit the life? So there, there are resources that are out there, but there's not enough of them. Okay. We've got to put more money into these resources. And so, for instance, one that wants to get out of the life um, in a perfect world would be a that does not have any other support system, you know, does not have family yeah. or friends that could really help them. Because once you get out, you got to find a job. If you're fighting um, a long arrest record, Finding a job is going to be hard. Yeah. If you have a felony, finding a place to live is going to be hard as well, right? Getting on Section 8 with a felony is not going to happen. So there's so many obstacles that are in the way. We have to look at what those obstacles are, and we got to get rid of them in order for that person to be able to push forward when, when exiting, regardless of whether they're a human trafficking victim or it, it, it's someone who is prostituted. Once they want to get out of the life, we've got to take away these barriers to make that easier for them because we're also dealing with someone that is um, more than likely has dealt with trauma. And so um, they're going to need counseling and the psychological help to be able to deal with their trauma in order to be healthy enough to make decisions. We've got to find them um, housing, um, jobs, um, education, 
Uh, some of them, their, their, their education stopped at the time that they were trafficked. Um, that arrested development, if they were taken at the age of 12, but they're 23, they're probably still making decisions like that 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a psychological component to it. And when I talk about jobs, I'm not saying find them a job at McDonald's. That's not, a, there's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. But what I'm saying is that's not a life-sustaining career. Right. So sometimes in order for them to get certified for that, that um, life-sustaining career, that arrest record can stop them as well. Mm-hmm. So we've got to take away these obstacles. There are so many people that are working on all these things that I talked about. And there's organizations that have been successful in all these things that I've talked about. But it's not enough. We still need more. So there needs to be money put into uh, nonprofit organizations to help that person out of the life. We need all hands on deck. Yes, indeed. It is absolutely just like you said, all hands on deck. We talked about a lot of things in this podcast. And there's going to be some things that resonate with you. Follow your heart. The things that resonated with you, follow your heart. Get involved. We need you in the fight. Dr. Powell, I just want to end. I know I've already said thank you, but I want to say it again. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, and thank you for all that that you are doing as well. If you've been enjoying listening to Consider Before Consuming, consider signing up to give $1 a month to support our efforts. Your contribution, whatever the amount, can make a significant difference in our efforts to educate individuals on the impacts of pornography. Sign up to give just $1 every month at ftnd.org forward slash give one. That's ftnd.org forward slash G-I-V-E in the number one. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. If you want to learn more about today's guest and the conversation we had, you can check out the links included with this episode. Again, big thanks to you for listening to this conversation. As you go about your day, we invite you to increase your self-awareness, look both ways, check your blind spots, and consider before consuming.